previously on Dream State. Today is October 29, 2021. Officer DeVore, when did you first become involved with the organization known as Conch? May 1st of this year, the day the Kennedy girl went missing. Mayday, mayday, mayday. You two must be from FedIA, Kevin Kinfield, Secretary of Homeland Security. This is Jack Meridian, Director at the Center of Neurological Capacity Harnessing. But it's pronounced Conch. Officer Nat DeVore. Officer Luke Marmoroth. Officer Marmoroth and DeVore from FedIA are our lead on this little task force, clearance level 10. So far, we've got the president's daughter missing. Holes in reality at the scene, a secret branch of the government that deals in holes in reality, which they detect with special plague masks. March 15th, 11.26 p.m., a tall white male with a large facial scar walks into a hotel downtown, knocks on the door of the penthouse suite, and is let in by one Amelia Targis. Seven minutes later, he exits carrying a large metal case. Maid discovers Amelia in her room next morning, throat cut. It all went down at the Meridian Hotel. Amelia Targus was one of Mr. Meridian's special guests. If memory serves, she worked for Big Pharma, a lobbyist, I think. Always brought this metal case with her. I never knew if it was full of legislation or samples. Tell me that's not the same type of metal case the senior conj agent was lugging around the limo this morning. With the mask... If Amelia Targus booked a few nights every month to meet with Meridian, which she did, and if she then opened her door willingly to Scarface, which the footage shows us she did, then it stands to reason that Amelia knew him and that he knows Meridian. And if Scarface knows Meridian, he knows Conch. I think it's high time we got to know them too. A large sign in front of the facility indicates they are now at the Center for Oniric Neurological Capacity Harnessing. Nat stares at the sign for several seconds. The fuck does Oniric mean? Again, we are live from Golden Canyon here in Los Angeles County, where reports are coming in that Rosemary Kennedy has been found. You followed the instructions perfectly, my dear. Now don't Don't forget forget the message. Find Gregory Blythe. What is the Hydra? No. No, 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 no. Luke forgot his Seroquel the night before. He was acting weird. Luke, whatever's going on with you, right now I need you to man the fuck up and stow it. I think Meridian should ride with me. I know I've got questions, and the trip to Golden Canyon will provide plenty of time to ask them. You stick with Slender Girl. Marmoroth seemed different, like he didn't belong. I mean, I took a strange liking to him, something quick, but he was uneasy too, anxious. A minute hand ticking as fast as he can to get away from the 12, only to come right back around to it. I mean, once we knew Pontiff was the mole, it was just pure chaos. But Pontiff won't get far, you'll see. Kagami will track that two-faced motherfucker down. You seem confident. That's because Kagami is an artist. Born with it, feel me? A natural talent, just raw attitude and power. I heard she even took down an angel once. If you believe in that kind of thing. Grace, call Patricia at Tactical. I want a team on their way to Conch HQ for a raid on the entire basement level. If they leave later than five minutes from now, it's your ass. There may genuinely be something in the basement waiting for you tomorrow evening, Colonel. But you just subpoenaed every single Conch employee in the building. You're saying the basement is... Most likely a red herring. A distraction. Any valuable intel will probably be in the director's office. Grace can't delay the tactical team on its way to Conch headquarters any longer than she already has. Her phone vibrates when the reply comes. I'm in his office now, not on bookshelf or in any of the drawers. Grace looks back down at her lap. Urgency shuffles her thumbs across the screen. 
Tactical ETA and 15 men. Find it, or Homeland Story sticks, and you disappear. Interrupt whatever you have to and get the colonel for us. Does this have something to do with the tactical team I just had Patricia Wells send to the conch facility? Tell us about Gregory Blythe. Are you really a kitsune? Yes, Colonel. I really am. I'm sorry. I really am. But the only way I'm not going to blow your skull open is if my son and I make it back alive. Is that clear? Good. Now do your thing, kitsune. Nada's examining Meridian's mask in her hands its metal case on the seat behind her. The leather is sleek, too stiff to be old. Whatever chemical cocktails taken up residence in the beak is pungent, but not entirely unpleasant. She turns sideways in the passenger seat and looks back at the director. Meridian sprawls out in the back of the full-size SUV, arms extending across the top of the cushioned leather seat. He still wears his black leather gloves and maroon suit, American flag pin on his lapel, sporadically glinting beneath the flickering dark. Why not just use gas masks? Easier to come by. They are that, but so... plebeian. The whole military-industrial thing doesn't really go with our aesthetic. Your aesthetic? Really? And how much does the average conch agent spend on wardrobe? Annually? Just curious. Less than Officer Marmoroth puts away for his daughter's college fund... More than the annual gap in wages between you two. Rage pulls at her lungs, squeezing them tighter as her pull shifts up a gear. Jack's eyes glisten like a wolf's in the periphery of a passing headlight. How's President Kennedy's equal pay initiative working out for you, Officer DeVore? Broken through that glass ceiling yet? In the driver's seat, the rusty orange hair of Agent Gabriel McCreen sheens beneath the streetlights parading by. <clears throat> Tell me, Director... Why do all of your field agents preen and prance around like a bunch of fucking peacocks? Is narcissistic personality disorder a prerequisite for employment as a conch agent? Or is that just how you get promoted fastest? It is usually a prerequisite. Though for different reasons than you're probably imagining. Did you see the sign outside our facility? We did. Seems Secretary Kinfield got your acronym wrong. Imagine our confusion. Jack's face maintains its mirth. You and your partner are clearance level 10, yes? Highest level there is, so don't fuck with me, Director, or IA will shut your psychoscience project down. <laughs> People at level 10 still sleep soundly at night, officer. They still dream. Well, not always. So what, you don't dream anymore? Side effect of doing what we do. You don't dream anymore either, do you, officer? You haven't for a long time. You know, of all the insane shit I've heard today, that's... Meridian leads forward into the bars of orange light gliding across the SUV's interior, pulling off the glove on his right hand. What are you doing? He puts his eye up to the smartwatch on his wrist, and it throws a cold, pale light over his face. He taps the screen with his index finger, pauses, taps, swipes, taps, taps rapidly with two fingers, then puts his eye up to the screen one more time. He sits up and blinks several times, then looks down at his wrist and smiles. What did you just do? Her phone buzzes with an alert as the director pulls his leather glove back over his hand. Welcome to clearance level 11, officer. Congratulations. Level 11, lesson 1. The word oniric is purposely not part of most people's vocabulary. 
It's safer if the average citizen doesn't even think about the unthinkable things we deal with every day. Luckily, Maniric is awkward to pronounce, tricky to spell, and has absolutely zero place in most conversations. People hear it and just assume it's something over their heads, or they think they misheard and forget about it. Kinfield is a perfect example. He's been to our facility dozens of times, and he's never asked about the sign out front. Yet, you and your... Curious. What's curious? You are. Your partner, too. I've upped his clearance level as well. Stay curious, Officer Devore. It's good for the soul. Or psyche, as the Greeks called it. The word oniric comes from them. An adjective meant to describe something to do with dreams. Oniris. All right. I think I got this. <clears throat> so, the oniric plane is the dream state? And cue the title sequence. You're listening to Dream State by Matt McCarthy. Produced by Tynan Media. Dream State contains potentially triggering content and is intended for mature audiences. Episode 5. Sanctioned Psychopathy. Clearance level 11, lesson 2. Conscious... Look, to really feel the weight of what we do here, you at least need a moderate grasp on the complicated bureaucratic system Conscious part of. So I'll give you the nutshell. Secretary Kinfield, clearance level 10, runs Homeland. Meanwhile, the rather small Homeland Office of Science and Technology, or HOST, is run by Undersecretary Dr. Cat Wild. Cleared at level 11. Beneath her is Deputy Undersecretary Edison Bent, who mainly acts as liaison between Wild and lesser departments, organizing meetings and such. Bent is cleared at level 10, like Kinfield, and has no real clue what we actually do. Now, Research and Development Partnerships, or RDP... At level 11, am I privy to how many fucking acronyms our government has in place? <laughs> Even I don't know that. You were saying, RDP, Research and Development Partnerships? Yes, at the very bottom of RDP, special projects, headed by Dr. Selena Keating, a genius, also level 11. She knows what we do and how we do it, more or less, uh, but there's still some things we'd rather she not know. But special projects is... a sealed black box. Clearance level 12 does not exist. Not in any document sealed, classified, redacted, top secret, or otherwise. But that's what Conch is. That's where we live. The sealed black box of level 12. Our chief scientist, Dr. Brandy Unken, along with our resident psychiatrist, Dr. Mariah Fisher, report what Dr. Keating needs to know. Keating then partners with Bent to schedule meetings with Wild. Lots of meetings. All for funding, entail, safety concerns, the legal authority to act, and criminal activity pertaining to the Oniric plane. The OP, as we affectionately call it. So Carl Jung's collective subconscious is... it's... Jung meant it metaphorically, but yes, it's real. When we sleep, our minds loosen their tethers to this plane of existence and enter another, shared by every dreaming mind that ever was. Right. I mean, no offense, Director, but science and basic reasoning have shown time and again that dreams are an internal process. Ever heard of Occam's Razor? The simplest explanation? That each dream is a symbolic journey every individual makes entirely alone? Eh. Occam's razors felt a little rusty in light of the Above Borders project. 
from your silence, I'm going to guess they didn't put that in my file. We were given jack shit on Jack Meridian. My partner and I had to do our own digging just to find your hotel. If Jack's face betrays any emotion, it is masked by the dark of the SUV. The Above Borders Project is where Kunt started, headed by doctors Artur and Brutus Pulo, twins who discovered the phenomenon of superliminalities. Super what? Superliminalities. From Latin super, meaning beyond or above, and the Latin limen, meaning a boundary, threshold, or limit. Now, transluminalities are a place where only two planes of existence overlap, allowing the subject to cross between the two. Superliminalities intersect all three planes of existence. The waking life here in the corporeal plane is separated from the aniric and postmortem planes by boundaries that limit our mind's perception, so we can't sense more than one plane at a time. Those who can, we tend to brand as delusional or insane, and write off their ramblings as incoherent gibberish. But I'm sure if we could see multiple planes of existence at once, the ravings of schizophrenics might make more sense. Director Kosen used to keep a few of them on hand to check liminalities for depth and safety, but as soon as Dr. Onkin's team developed the translim spectrograph lenses, we didn't need the schizos anymore. After fidgeting with the mask in her hands, Nat picks it up and over her head. The whisper of odor she smelled with the mask in her lap is now a booming roar, earthy and sweet, with hints of gasoline. Pressure hits her ears as the chemicals are carried to her brain. Her ears pop like she's reached a higher altitude. The director is saying something, but it seems far away, unimportant. I see yellow and gold rippling like water before a storm. I really hope that's not all there is to the Oneiric plane. Nat pulls off the mask grateful to be able to breathe oxygen again. Because I could get that same everything's wiggly effect just dropping acid. No, that's perfectly natural. Likely all you can see right now. The OP is constantly shifting and we are moving rather quickly. But even stationary, those lenses do little more than shine a flashlight into the dark. Just far enough into it that we can get a decent look at it. The dark ever look back? The dark is always looking. She squints at him, but he's... Unreadable. So, these planes, they all occupy the same physical space? Mm, sort of. Liminalities are physical areas, and urban legends tend to spring up around them. Places where souls go missing, where the dead speak, where time slows down and gravity sideways. Sometimes people wander in and never find their way back. Sometimes monsters find a way out. You're totally fucking with me. Would that I were. As fates would have it, officer, a superliminality is waiting at the crime scene. Is that where the whole abandoned forest thing came from? The missing Golding House? Very good, officer. You catch on quick. By the end of October, it'll open wide again, and the Golding House will reappear. If you're not doing anything that night before Halloween, maybe you'd like I'd to- I'd like to catch whoever did this before then, thank you. What happened to the Above Borders Project? Have you heard of Dr. Kent Keel, the psychopath whisperer? Well, for ten years, Keel conducted hundreds of brain scans on violent, institutionalized psychopaths and found that certain parts of psychopaths' brains are inactive, specifically areas involved in self-awareness, impulse control, decision-making, and empathy. The limbic region, 
the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex. Remember those. Limbic, amygdala, prefrontal cortex. LAPC. Limbic, amygdala. Fucking acronyms, Jesus. Prefrontal cortex. Okay. LAPC. Limbic, amygdala, prefrontal cortex. Limbic, amygdala, prefrontal cortex. Got it. Good. So, Keel published his findings, but the scientific community wanted the results replicated. Keel spent the next decade reproving what he'd already proved. But some researchers on his team wanted to move forward with experimentation towards treatment. Enter Dr. Tobias Pragmar, young, smart, and hungry. Pragmar was determined to find a cure for psychopathy, so he left Keel's team to pursue his own research. At a conference for the Society of Neuroscience in late 2008, he saw a presentation by a group of researchers from the Netherlands. This group had successfully sparked empathy in psychopaths by specifically instructing them to do so. See this video of a hand getting crushed in the doorway? Now imagine that happening to your hand. Ding! Empathy centers light up. A little bit. Even if it took dozens of tries to get there. Huh. My dad used to take us to the beach. Seattle beaches are freezing and windy, so we'd have bonfires to keep the cold from seeping into our bones. Sometimes we wanted to stay longer than we had firewood for, so my dad would run down the beach and he almost always came back with a wet log or driftwood of some sort to throw on the fire. It would never catch at first. It couldn't, by nature. Just when we were ready to give up, call it a night, the damp would get so worn down that the wood's nature didn't matter. The fire won. Every time. I suppose it was a little like that. Though the human brain took a bit more wearing down than your father's driftwood. At the same conference, Pragmar also met a group of German researchers who were conducting sleep studies using fMRI machines during subjects' attempts at lucid dreaming. What they found is the subjects most adept at achieving dream awareness had significant activity in the limbic region, the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex. Problematically, once the German subjects became aware, their brains spiked and they couldn't keep control. They'd wake having accomplished nothing. The Germans discovered something many scientists had discovered before. Testing lucid dreaming at all is almost completely futile. Human memory is faulty and is not a reliable indicator of actual results. Technology hadn't advanced to the point of empirically objective dream research. Not yet. But now it has. Thanks to Conch? Well, mostly thanks to agents Tier and Sakayumi. They figured out the science that could overcome those hurdles. But even they owe much to Pragmar's work. As the conference was coming to an end, Pragmar was saying his goodbyes when he overheard the Germans discussing the Pula brothers and their Above Borders project. The Germans murmured amongst each other that they might be able to partner with the Pulos if they could only find them. Rumors around the Pulu's latest hotspot, as the Germans called it, placed them in L.A. County. But Pragmar couldn't find anything on the Pulu brothers. Nothing on Google, no scientific publications, no blog, no Twitter, nothing. So he went to where the Germans mentioned the Pulu's hotspot might be to see for himself. Golden Canyon. Exactly. 
But when he arrived in the abandoned forest, it was obvious the Pula brothers had no idea what they had or what to do with it. Sending people into this superliminality with cables around their waist, just hoping no one got lost or died. After three scientists disappeared, an estimated loss of tens of millions of dollars. The Pulos were all ears to Bragmire's ideas. He proposed the subject lay down in the middle of the superliminality and try lucid dreaming from there. Now, because your brain and body are effectively one and the same, your mind reflexively projects a corporeal form of yourself in the OP, an avatar. But seeing your own double is existentially terrifying. So every dream study conducted in the superliminality went a little like this. The subject falls asleep. Avatar materializes nearby. Avatar sees actual sleeping body. Subject freaks out. Avatar vanishes. Subject wakes up. Frustrated to no end, Pragmar eventually called one of his old contacts on Dr. Keel's team and got in touch with the warden at Gamora. Gamora? As in Sodom and? No, that's just what people call it. Napa State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Worst of the worst. School shooters, necrophiliacs, cannibals, child murderers, artists who work in the devil's colors. I don't know how Pragmire did it, but the warden at Gamora agreed to his proposal on a case-by-case basis. A screening process was put into place and soon Above Borders was recording the neurological activity of dreaming psychopaths. But the early experiments only proved what Pragmire had feared. The subjects could enter the dream state lucidly, but rarely did they have the necessary neurology to really reach their full effectual capacity. Their projections would materialize, as expected, but mostly they kind of just walked around. They lacked the agency Pragmar hoped for. No one went flying through the air, or turned the trees into oil paint, or folded cities on themselves, nothing. The stimulation on the LAPC areas of the brain were neither enough to demonstrate or disprove any therapeutic value of Pragmar's methods. He spent the better part of a year unable to get past this hurdle. But then, Pragmar met a witch. A witch? How very science. (laughs) The dream state isn't entirely scientific. It's kind of wibbly-wobbly, dreamy-weamy. They pull off the 210 highway onto North Blizniak, following the trail of police cars, ambulances, armored FBI trucks, and Luke's car. Nat briefly wonders what he's getting out of Slender Girl, then scowls and looks back at Meridian. Okay, so what did this witch bring to the table? Magic? Is she on Conch's payroll now? Did she have the talent and means to, uh... Apparate into the first daughter's limo and then disapparate? The means she used to achieve her ends wouldn't be suitable for a children's book. This particular witch had a ritual of going deep into Golden Canyon the night before Halloween. She had no idea what a superliminality was, but she knew it opened widest on that night every year. She enhanced her communion with what she assumed was a spirit world using some somatic herbs, stimulants, pharmaceuticals, and psychedelics said she could control the wolves, that they'd speak to her, tell her things. She would enter into a trance and step outside herself, offer up a sacrifice, and with each year's sacrifice, she summons something vicious. 
Meridian pauses as an LAPD officer checks Agent McQueen's credentials rigorously, then waves them through. The witch's concoction breathed new life into Pragmire's research. The chemicals, when inhaled, targeted the LAPC areas of the brain, raising subjects' imagination and impulse control and empathy to a sort of Goldilocks level. Just right. And that's the story of Pragmire's founding of Conch. And why we exclusively employ psychopaths as our field agents. Ta-da! Pragmire. Where is he now? Dead. Oh, lighten up. I didn't do it. That coup was before my time. And the witch? What happened to her? Her name was Amelia Targus. And as soon as we got word she was ready to sell the compound to a third party, she was murdered. The SUV pulls up next to Luke's car, and Jack opens the SUV back door, stepping out. Nat's mind races at the mention of Amelia Targus, the conch agent with a scar down his face. She clambers out onto the gravel parking lot at the entrance to Golden Canyon. She glances in the direction of Luke's car, Claire Swanson looking smug in the passenger seat. She turns back to Meridian. Director, who's Hesper's pontiff working for? (laughs) Well, up until an hour ago, I would have said Conch. But now, I'm not particularly confident in that assertion. Was he working for Conch when he killed Amelia Targus? Meridian grins at her through the dark as they approach the crime scene, floodlights poking through the branches like pale fingers. Nat notes the unanswered question and hurries after him. Claire Swanson and Gabriel McCreen are walking alongside them, and Nat is suddenly alert to the fact that she's traversing a forest at night with three certified psychopaths. She whips out her phone and asks Luke if he needs a written goddamn invitation, then catches up with the director. Director, where does Conch get its funding? Some private donors, but most of its dark money we have to solicit by planting the desire to tweak legislation into government officials' brains. Nat stares at him, aghast. Why? What did you think we were doing in the Oniric Plain? Recreating MC Etcher's greatest hits? Summoning clothes for our naked at school dreams? Teaching ourselves to fly? Nat ducks as a branch Meridian crouches beneath snaps back and nearly smacks her in the jaw. Learning to regrow our teeth? He turns and faces her, smile glinting in the moonlight. We're an intelligence organization, Officer DeVore. As such, one thing we're always tasked with is finding the worst in people. Vices, grudges, bitterness, shame. Then we exploit it. So your job is to, what, blackmail politicians? To what end? Look at the bigger picture, Officer DeVore. Yes, we blackmail people who need convincing to do the right thing. Yes, we plant ideas in people's heads. But we do so much more. Conch's job is to save this godforsaken world. From what? From ourselves. From what we want in our darkest hearts. From what we would sacrifice to make our dreams real. If dreams were meant to come true, we wouldn't be imprisoned in these fucking person suits. They step through the branches into a clearing. The first daughter's corpse looks even more gruesome in person than in the pictures. Nat has to swallow the sick rising in her throat. Is that all we are? Underneath? Meat suits. I said what I meant. Person suits. We could be so much more. Even looking at it with her own two eyes, Nat has trouble believing it. 
beautiful, graceful, intelligent, philanthropic Rosie Kennedy, reduced to a flayed, mutilated piece of flesh hung up on meat hooks. Luke was right before. This is fucking evil. Nat looks at her ex-bosses expectantly and shrugs. What else do you want me to say? You two were at the crime scene when we got there and stuck around long after Luke and I went home. I'm not sure how much light I can shed on anything else that happened that night. The colonel and I were otherwise occupied. There was devastatingly little precedent on determining how much of Rosemary's death Is that what you were debating with the various head homeland honchos all night? What percentage of transparency would play best? How long could it possibly take to decide to put a black bag over her head? Not that it mattered. Galvixen got her hands on a picture of Rosie before the coroner even got there. Nat, do you recall any text messages or... I've handed over everything on this case. My phone, my notes, my files, my pictures, even my goddamn partner. Somehow you fucking lost all of it. Your partner has been given special leeway to investigate this case as he sees fit. Well, good fucking job there. Now he and Meridian are poof, gone. And you two are still no closer to catching Vixen. What the fuck have you guys been doing? Trying to answer a question. Uskford places a small plastic evidence bag on the table and slides it across to Nat. Inside is a tarot card. The magician. Blood, now dull and rust-colored, has been painted over the eponymous figure's face, as well as the infinity symbol over his head. The memory of Rosie Kennedy, carved up and displayed like a taxidermied angel, rips through her thoughts. She flips the card over, and a shudder ripples through her, hairs on her arms jumping up. That question doesn't belong. Not here. It's from another time. Another place. Another context. Jesus, this brawl of this just keeps... Where did you get this? Your partner came to us with that as soon as you asked to have him taken off the case. Apparently you found it in a gutter downtown at the site of Rosemary's abduction. Her blood. Fucking asshole. He never told you about it? No. No, he never told me about the card. But he has told me about this question. The question. She flips the card over so that the back is facing Uskford and Tyndale. He's seen it before. Back when he was still in high school. Before he went into hiding. That was his stalker's whole kick. What is the Hydra? What is the Hydra? The question was everywhere. And to your knowledge, does that have anything to do with the yearbook photos Gal Vixen just publicly released? You mean Meridian's senior class photos? Before he that? disappeared, your partner stated he didn't know the answer to the question. That's correct. At least to my knowledge. And what about your partner's wife, Audrey Somerset? Do you think she might have some clue as to what the Hydra is? Why it's so important? Uh, Audrey and I... We've never quite been on the best of terms. Why do you ask? We've been tailing her. As a person of interest. Ever hear of Jude Caravel, investigative journalist for The Catch? Besides Gal Vixen, the other half of the public's information on this case have come from his stories. The NSA's face mapping algorithms positively matched him to another yearbook photo from Meridian's high school, taken three years earlier. But Caravel's freshman photo is listed under the name Harvey Chess. According to our sources, Caravel... Or Chess. Whoever he is, he regularly visits... With Audrey Somerset. Tyndale spread several photos across the table. Audrey and Caravel leaving a hotel together. Audrey holding the front door of her home open late at night as Caravel comes in. The photos span years. Luke and Audrey have an open relationship. Have for as long as I've known him. None of this is even suspicious. 
I'm guessing you have someone spying on me as well. We'd be a pretty shitty IA office if we couldn't keep an eye on our own employees. We knew you and your partner were sleeping together a good month before you worked up the spine to come to us. Not gonna lie, it was kind of fun watching you awkwardly avoid anything beyond the most basic platonic interactions around the office. Don't give me that look. You're lucky we didn't fire both of you for violating the ethics clause of the NDAs you signed when you were hired, but the colonel insisted that you're both too talented to lose. What can I say? I'm a soft touch. Now, Caraville's been questioned by the FBI before. Price of good journalism. But I have a feeling he might be able to blow this case wide open. We need your help, though. If I got Audrey Somerset to Guantanamo, she still wouldn't tell me how to find Caraville. That won't be necessary. We've already subpoenaed him. He's sitting in the colonel's office right now. We need you to go in there and find out what happened back in high school. Why Vixen leaked this information in particular. He won't give up his sources without a fight, but do what you have to. Find out where Caraval's getting his leads, and if he knows, find out what the Hydra is. Think that's something you can do? Am I... off probation, sir? Tyndale places her badge and her gun on the table and slides them over to her. She looks down at them bitter that she was suspended in the first place. But she wants answers. God, she needs answers. And she needs to find Luke, if only just to make sure he's all right. She reaches forward and reclaims her weapon and authority. Yeah. I'll talk to him for you. Thank you, Nat. We have a list of... No. I'll ask my own questions, or I'll stay on probation. Your call, Colonel. Uskford assesses her, then nods. Congratulations on your promotion, Lieutenant DeVore. Welcome back. Claire is interrupted by a knock at the door. Doublechin looks to Fivehead with a raised brow, but she ignores both him and the knock. What did you mean by that, Claire? A minute hand that keeps coming back around to the twelve? You gonna get that? It'll wait. Answer the question. James, go send who's ever at the door home for the day. Colonel... Captain, I swear to Mary's virgin asshole, if you so much as suggest a question to my authority one more time today, you will find yourself remembering the metal leg of Agent Swanson's chair with extreme fondness. Now go see who's tap-tap-tapping at your chamber door and see if you can't find a window to throw them out of. Double chin stands and buttons the top button of his coat before clopping over to the door. Fivehead never takes her eyes from Claire. Grace, we're not even close to being done with this. Sorry, sir. Kinfield and Undersecretary Wilde insisted. James? Doublechin looks nervously in Fivehead's direction. Then back to the familiar-looking blonde woman, Claire can tell is wearing way too much makeup, even from this side of Doublechin's desk. Grace, I'll be out in a... it's about... James? Gregory Blythe. Fuck. Sorry, Grace, it's gonna have to wait. Doublechin slams the door on Cakeface and returns to his seat... Claire forges her memories for where she's seen Cakeface before, but she can't think of it. Now, where were we? Officer Marmoroth. Right. The minute hand thing? I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm imagining things, but his phone kept buzzing and buzzing. Every time it did, he'd read the text, then put it right back in his coat pocket. Must have got half a dozen of them. Never responded, but each new text made him more and more agitated. Zzz. 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 
By the time we got to Golden Canyon, he was hardly saying nothing at all, except for barking and snapping at me like some kind of feral dog. In a lot of ways, he reminded me of Jack. He could see patterns. And I think he saw something familiar on the horizon. Something dreadful. Luke returns his phone to his inner coat pocket. Again. Audrey isn't supposed to be contacting him during his vacation. Never mind that he and Nat didn't go anywhere. Audrey doesn't even know that yet. Though if he's objective, he doubts anyone in the country is talking about anything but Rosemary's abduction. And it's only a matter of hours before everyone's conversation changes tone. Today will go down in history, and the country will be forever changed after. Like Black Tuesday. Like the grassy knoll at Fort Worth. Like Watergate. Like 9-11. And now, May Day. May Day. May Day. When the president's daughter was kidnapped, mutilated, and murdered. Right here in the city of fallen angels. Luke wonders if maybe he was wrong before. Maybe this isn't specifically about the president at all. And Leonard Kennedy was just in the wrong office at the wrong time. Maybe the implied message is everything. You are not safe. No one is safe. That's definitely what Audrey's thinking. Her texts want to make sure he's alright. To know he's coming home again. To assure him that Heidi's okay. She even sends picture proof. Heidi sitting on Audrey's lap in her Wonder Woman pajamas. Smiling and waving hi to the camera for Daddy while he's on vacation. Luke doesn't even remember how it feels to be that young anymore. To be that hopeful and oblivious to the world at large. Try as they may, he knows neither he nor Audrey will be able to keep their daughter from this for long. Everything all right, officer? Luke snaps back to attention just as Conscious SUV pulls up next to him. Shit. He doesn't remember anything since exiting the freeway. Sorry, lost my train of thought. What were you saying? We were talking about Kagami. Raw talent. So, do you? Do I what? Believe in angels. Outside, Nat, Director Meridian, and another conch agent, a tall, red-headed male with sideburns and a plaid brown suit, hop out of their SUV and survey the gravel parking lot at the entrance of Golden Canyon. He looks oddly familiar. Let me ask you something, Slender Girl. Do you believe in th- the fates? Matter of fact, I do. <laughs> and you're an idiot. Claire's eyebrows rise in the dark of Luke's car. Or you are. You may have everyone else fooled, but for the record, I see the dark coil behind your eyes like an insect. You think you're doing the world a favor, keeping it hidden? A word of advice, officer. No one outsmarts the fates. Not for long. She climbs out of the car and goes after the director, toward the woods, slamming the door after her. Luke stays in the car for a minute, collecting himself. He gets another text, this one from Nat, asking if he's waiting for a written invitation. She is standing on the edge of the tree line, the lean angles of her face highlighted by the glow of her phone. He responds, assuring her he'll be right there, and she turns, vanishing into the forest. Luke reaches into his coat and pulls out the magician, flipping the bloody card over several times in his fingers. (sighs) 
Jesus, maybe I am. Just a big fucking idiot. He puts the card away again and presses his fingers into his eyes, rubbing until geometric mandalas begin radiating from behind each of his eyelids. He's exhausted and hasn't eaten, and he needs a Seroquel. Of course, the catch-22 is that he's going to need to be alert for at least the next several hours, and if he eats, he'll go into a food coma after only one. And even if he had a Seroquel to take, he'd be almost unwakeable for at least seven. He reaches into the back seat, rummaging through a few empty bags of takeout, and opens one of his emergency Red Bulls, chugging it in less than half a minute. He belches and feels his acid reflux peek its head out for a second before he opens the door and steps out. An orgy of flashing emergency vehicles is assembled in the gravel lot, closed off by police cordons, and a parliament of news vans is gathered beyond that. Luke is about to head after Nat when he hears someone from the other side of the barricade calling his name. Luke! Shit. He knows that voice. He hates that voice. He hates everything about it. Well, hate may be a bit strong. With age, the hate has simmered into what Luke would describe as tolerance. Barely, Audrey would probably add. Luke! Luke grits his teeth and pretends he didn't hear. Luke Marmaroff! Luke has to literally bite his tongue before turning to face the man fucking his wife. Jude Caravelle is average height with hair coiffed to one side and thick glasses. His smile is gratingly charming. Hey, Jude. Luke, I... Don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Christ, really? Now? Since when do you care about being appropriate? You're writing for that clickbait rag now, right? The catch? No, hate me. It's a newspaper. It's a fucking website, Judy. One of these days you're going to get over your delusions of grandeur. You're not Glenn goddamn Greenwald. What are you even doing here? Audrey said you and your squeeze were supposed to be on vacation. I was supposed to be a lot of things, Judy. Apparently, I live to disappoint. So this is what you do? <laughs> I, I thought you just worked at a boring internal affairs office researching paper trails, shit like that. Shit like that is exactly what I do. My boss's boss just happens to be Veronica Rogan. The Comptroller General. You're joking. That's... Fucking bananas. Wait, can, can you... Can you tell me anything? Is it true that Rosie Kennedy's been carved up worse than the Black Dahlia? Like, mutilated? I heard that this is like some straight Hannibal Lecter shit. What the, even if that were true, how would you possibly know that? I'm not even on scene yet. What the, Where are you getting this shit? I know, people. Well, you're sure as death not getting a quote from me. But off the record... Luke takes hold of Jude's coat, the police barricade between them, and pulls him close. He leans forward until his lips are centimeters from Jude's ear. Take care of yourself, Harvey. Whoever's behind this isn't finished carving. And sooner or later, they're going after Gregory Blythe. Jude Caravelle pulls back and stares, as though he's seen a ghost. Thought I should warn you. Good luck with your, uh, blog. Luke turns away and walks after Nat into the trees, into the dark. He doesn't look down. He doesn't look back. And can you describe the murder scene for me, Agent McCreen? Special Agent Gabriel McCreen, 
shifts in his chair and scratches his orange beard. It was less of a murder scene and more of modern art installation. You were there, Captain. You saw. You and Cat Wild and Secretary Kenfield and your boss, uh, Colonel Oxford, right? Where is she, by the way? I heard from Deputy Swanson you guys were double-teaming us. Captain Tyndale swallows, discernibly frustrated. His upper cheek, just under his eye, is ornamented by a large band-aid, a healthy dollop of congealing blood staining its center. Things are moving too slowly. New strategy, divide and conquer. Hmm. You don't know who to trust, do you? The captain wipes his sweaty forehead with a worn gray sleeve of his coat, a loose thread hanging from one of the buttons. Understandable. Whatever's really going on, it's bigger than all of us. The dreaming awake has been moving toward this for a long time. Decades. You seem to have a keen grasp on the ODA's inner workings. I've encountered them more than once. If I can exterminate every last member of their little terrorist cult before I die, I will have lived a good life. Sounds like this is personal for you. They took my family from me. Why should that stop someone like you? I've heard multiple sworn statements today, all asserting that you can and do speak to the dead. That's how you got mixed up with Conch, right? Tell me, Gabriel, how did you become Reverend McCreen, speaker for the dead? The captain opens a folder, and paper clipped to a stack of papers is a black business card. Gabe recognizes it before Tyndale flicks it across the desk. It's his, or at least it used to be. How does it work? I've been told you use the tarot extensively. They must really speak to you. The cards? (laughs) No. It's the dead who talk to me. I just know how to listen. But if you want to make a living, you gotta dress it up a bit. Even when it's the genuine article. Like putting a fake horn on a real unicorn. Some people use crystals or candles or tea leaves or chicken bones. (laughs) But the cards have a sort of archetypal symbolism. And symbolism is malleable enough to shape around the real secrets of the postmortem plane. Why not just call it the afterlife? Existence is not made entirely of life, Captain. The postmortem plane is complicated. It's not like I can just go there whenever I want. Strictly speaking, I can't go there until I'm dead. But I can project my perception there, along with the language center of my brain. That's how I get my messages from beyond. And how exactly did you learn to do that? Gabe shifts in his chair and rubs the back of his neck. My mom, she, uh, she died when I was 11. Car accident. Tyndale looks sorely uncomfortable. It's been a long day for him, and he's wearing down. Gabe can tell. He wonders if the captain lost his mother, too. I'm sorry to hear that. I remember what it was like when my own mother... Gabe gives him a good-natured smile, pleased his instincts haven't led him astray. I mean, it was devastating, but I had to be strong. My sister, Autumn, she was only five when it happened. She didn't understand why our mom wasn't coming back. Autumn said if mom wasn't coming back, maybe we could call her and talk to her. I told her that was fucking stupid, and she should grow up and get over it. I couldn't get over it either. One night I couldn't sleep. Couldn't stop thinking about her. Our mom. 
then, without a phone, without knowing how, I found her. At first, it was just this storm of words, like trying to read a book printed on transparent pages without being able to even open it. A whole ocean of memories that weren't mine. It was loud, terrifying in my mind, and I pulled away. But the next night, I tried again. I focused on my very last memory of her, kissing me goodbye, and I felt drawn to this. This corresponding mirrored memory from her perspective, her love for me, as she kissed me goodbye. It was magnetic. From there, I was able to experience the rest of her last night on Earth. We lived in Albany at the time. My parents went out and had dinner with one of my dad's old professors. He had just moved to upstate New York from the West Coast. Bought a mansion, sleek, wooden exterior in a lush little corner of the woods. Dr. Nod. <laughs> no, sorry, that's wrong. It was Dr. Thewlis. Xander, please, he insisted. I experienced that dinner conversation, the food, the wine, the emotions that came with names and phrases I couldn't possibly understand. Well, why not? The human brain relies on physical neural shortcuts. It constantly reorganizes memories into emotional context so it can make better, faster decisions. But your mind can't mimic a shortcut that's not there in your own brain. That's why reading minds is impossible. Too many shortcuts specific to the individual's biological hardware. Of course, at 11, <laughs> I didn't care that I didn't understand. I needed to see what happened. Eventually, my mom got drowsy. The red wine probably didn't help. My dad said he'd drive, even though he was obviously tired as well. Xander offered to call them a cab, but my dad refused. My mom, well... <laughs> Why were your parents meeting with Dr. Thulis in the first place? Thulis used to head a pseudo-spiritual metaphysical organization. A cult. Bingo. I heard my dad call him Thulis the Hierophant a couple times. Probably where my affinity for the cards came from. The Hierophant. That's another tarot card. Uh-huh. The sixth major arcana. Technically. What do you mean, technically? Technically, the fool is the first card. The beginning. The blithe, young, idealistic, hesitant, idiot hero of the tarot cycle. But the fool is also unnumbered. Our hero is a zero. Is that something you ever talked about with your sister? Yeah, a little. Why? Tyndale scratches something on his notepad, then takes out his phone and sends a text. I'm curious, what does the fool have to do with the Hierophant? <sighs> the Hierophant is archetypically there to give the fool spiritual direction on the first season of their journey. And while the fool is unnumbered, the Hierophant is given the Roman numeral five, the, as in the letter carved into Rosie Kennedy's face. Tyndale scribbles something on his notepad. Okay, what exactly is a Hierophant? Head of a spiritual order, like a chief priest or shaman or a pope, just so happens the order that Thulis was head of was the Dreaming Awake. Or used to be. When my parents went to go see him, my mom was looking to join up, but there was a new hierophant, a neurophysiologist at UCLA. That 
was a Dr. Nod I was thinking of before. Dr. Nod? Yeah. Now that I think of it, my dad initially introduced Thulus as Dr. Nod, until Thulus corrected him. <laughs> not sure what to make of that. And this Dr. Nod works at UCLA? Probably not anymore. The school Rosemary Kennedy was on her way to visit the morning of May 1st. This was decades ago. And when I finally came to California, I had more pressing things to take care of than obsess over a case of mistaken identity. Anyway, after dinner with Thulis, my mom fell asleep in the passenger seat, and when she woke up, my dad was asleep at the wheel. She shook him awake, and he swerved to avoid hitting an oncoming motorcycle. The bike maneuvered around them easily, but their car went off the road, flew into a ditch. Dad wasn't wearing his seatbelt, and he was launched through the windshield. Mom hit her head on the passenger window, started going in and out. In her lucid moments, she tried to undo the seatbelt, but the mechanism was jammed. She couldn't. Then the car caught fire. Tyndale's mouth tightens, and Gabe hears the captain holding his breath, the moment stretching uncomfortably across the ticking seconds. Gabe lets the tension of the silence stretch tighter and tighter, knowing the story's resolution will have a stronger emotional impact this way. My 11-year-old brain couldn't deal with that kind of pain. I found myself back in my bed, screaming. My dad tried to calm me down, but I wouldn't let him touch me. I kept shouting, You fell asleep, you fucking bastard. You fell asleep over and over. Think I tried hitting him with a baseball bat. Did you ever forgive him? Why would I do that? Closure? <laughs> Overrated. No, I tried to tough it out. But I knew if I stayed, I'd end up killing him. So I decided to run away to California, completely opposite side of the country. All by your 11-year-old self. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> I didn't have the financial resources. And I wasn't about to start going down on truckers only to starve to death once I got here. So I stayed in New York almost two more years, saved my money till I was 13, when I was sure I wouldn't go hungry. I tried to slip out in the middle of the night, but Autumn heard me. Wouldn't let me go alone. So I had to buy an extra train ticket. Our dad found us pretty quick. He didn't take us back to New York, though. Thought the change of scenery was actually a good idea. And that didn't strike you as odd? I mean, it never occurred to you that he might have come out here for the express purpose of equating himself with the Order's new hierophant, this Dr. Nod. Honestly, I didn't overanalyze his motivations at the time. But if I had to make a guess, he probably figured if Autumn and I were busy getting used to a completely new environment, our psychological survival instinct would compartmentalize our grief. I hated him for that. But I knew if I killed him, they'd lock me up, and Autumn would be alone <laughs> in the foster system. Soon as I was 14, though, I started petitioning for emancipation, and that took for fucking ever. Ugh. Court insisted I get my diploma first, so I fast-tracked that, studied my ass off. Nights and weekends, I freelance as a medium, started making a steady income. 
The week before I turned 16, they approved my emancipation, and I left. Autumn never forgave me. But she's an astonishing girl. I'm sure she's better off without me in her life. You don't talk anymore. Gabe shakes his head. Last I saw her or my dad was her high school graduation in 2013. It was weird. She didn't even make her walk across the stage. Kept looking over her shoulder all day. Wouldn't say what, but she was scared of something. After that, she completely disappeared. Email, social media, medical records, driver's license, all just gone. Do you have any pictures of her? Gabe bites his tongue. For all his communication with the deceased, sometimes he has trouble reading the living. The captain pulls out four small stapled packets of paper and tosses them across the desk. Gabe silently berates himself for not seeing this coming. Do you know what these are? Not a fan of guessing games, so why don't you do me a favor and skip the foreplay? Cal Vixen recently gave us a little strip tease. Jack Meridian's senior class portraits. I heard. So what? So, these are the full Monty. Class photos from every year Jack Meridian was at Beverly Hills High until his graduation. In 2013. Wait. The director was in my sister's graduating class? He was. Now, whose portrait, do you imagine, is missing not only from the 2012-13 to yearbook, but the three subsequent yearbooks as well? Gabe flips through the pages, finding each year's not-pictured section. He knows the name that's about to come out of Tyndale's mouth. Gregory Blythe. You know who else is not pictured anywhere in Beverly Hills High's yearbooks? Your sister, Autumn McCreen. <laughs> she used to always get this gleam in her eyes when she talked about her bestie, Greg. I just never put two and two. You expect me to believe that when you saw Gregory Blythe's name carved into Rosemary Kennedy's chest on Mayday, that nothing... Clicked? Nothing. Gabe deliberates a moment. There's too much at stake for the truth to fall into the wrong hands. He has to lie. And he has to lie well. The director brought me to Golden Canyon for one purpose and one purpose only. Asking Rosemary who murdered her. Yeah, I know. I was there. I also know that you have a theory about that V on Rosemary's face. Unless you brought up the Roman numeral at the bottom of the Hierophant card for no reason. What I don't know is what exactly Rosemary told you that night. What she really told you. The part that wasn't in your initial report. Care to fill me in? (laughs) If you want me to go on record as having withheld information, I'm going to need assurances in writing. Captain Tyndale leans forward, a little too eager, a little too confident. Anything you need. I want protection. For me and for Autumn. I know she's not dead. I would have found her by now. But I think you know where she is. And I want to see her. Tyndale smirks and leans back in his chair. We thought you might say that. You'll see her all right. I'll have my assistant put it in writing. But first, I need you to see someone else. The Hierophant. Xander Thulis is dead. I watched him die. We think Dr. Nod may not be a single person, but a control built into the Order's infrastructure. A misdirect. Smoke and mirrors. What do you mean? Who else do you know who could possibly be, and I quote, a chief priest or shaman or pope, 
whose name means pretty much exactly all of those things. On the floor above us are several temporary holding cells. I need you to go and talk to Hesperus Pontiff. <laughs> you found the bastard. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. He was snooping around the director's office at Conch HQ. Not sure what he was looking for, but he's in a bad way. Seems to have some sort of affliction. Affliction? At a glance, it looks like intense radiation poisoning. But we don't know for sure. The whole floor is being quarantined as we speak. LA's best radiobiologist, toxicologist, virologist, and epidemiologist are on their way. Pontiff is very weak, Gabriel, but he won't talk to us. Gabe leans his head to one side, the muscles in his neck and shoulders popping audibly. He tries to hide the vicious hunger beneath his smile. I promise, Captain. He'll talk to me. Everyone talks to me. Dream State Episode 5 was written and directed by Matt McCarthy and featured the additional talent of Kate Newman, Anne Parma, Slade James, Jante Godlock, Adria Young, Dave Bethke, and Sarah Jo Elise. Music and sound design by Matt McCarthy. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters for helping to make this episode possible, especially Peggy Ramsey, Mariah McCarthy, Eric Wolford, Jessica Ray, Robin Macias, Caitlin Litsheim, Nicholas Masite, Lucinda Nicholas, and Veronica Nelson. Dream State will always be an ad-free audio drama. But if you would like a way to give back and help us cover expenses, please head over to patreon.com slash dreamstate. As a patron, you can get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes extras, music, as well as other exclusive content. We understand money can be tight. If you're enjoying our show but can't afford to do Patreon right now, there are still things you can do to help us out. Like, subscribe, follow, and share Dream State with anyone you think might enjoy it. Tell your friends. Write us a heartfelt review telling us why you enjoy Dream State on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you use. Thank you so much for listening. And for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, thank you for sticking around. We're so glad you're still with us. We love you. Dream well. Dream well.